This is episode 86 of The New Disruptors, Backfeats to the Future with Philip Ross, permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you in part by 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Our listeners can visit 99designs.com disruptors to get a $99 power pack of services for free. This podcast is made possible through the support of sponsors and patrons. Thanks to Cards Against Humanity, which is helping to underwrite our indie ads. Cards Against Humanity just launched a site where you can buy directly from them, including their Bigger Blacker box and their 2012 and 2013 holiday packs, the profits from which are donated to charity. Visit CardsAgainstHumanity.com. Our indie advertisers this week are App Accomplished, a book that guides you step-by-step through turning your idea for an app from a set of requirements through hiring a developer and into a released piece of software. And Foxy Cart, the most flexible way to add e-commerce to your website. Thanks also to patrons Ben Wordmuller, Alex Bond, and Andy McMillan for supporting us directly through Patreon. You can back this podcast for as little as $1 a month at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. At higher levels, we'll thank you on the air like this and send you mugs and t-shirts. Welcome to The New Disruptors, the podcast that suggests you sit and spin. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. Philip Ross is one of the fellows behind Metrofeats. It's a company that makes cargo bikes, a kind of transportation vehicle that was developed in the Netherlands and is known as Bakfietsen there. He and his partner, James Nichols, build their bikes in Portland, Oregon. A surprise, I know, another podcast about someone in Portland. Phil helped bring Critical Mass to Portland, and he's the co-creator and producer of the pedal-powered talk show. He is literally the engine that makes that podcast go. Phil, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Glenn. I really appreciate you inviting me on. It's a pleasure to have you uh, because uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one of which because you're in Portland, of course, we have to eventually <laughs> I'm interviewing everybody in Portland. But uh, another is um, we spend a lot of time talking about things abstractly. You work with your hands. You're making physical goods. And I think sometimes like both conceptually, even for people who listen to the show who aren't involved in, you know, manual labor and manufacture or and I know you have a obviously a huge computer component involved in what you do as well. Yes. But people who don't work with their hands, I think it's important for us to think about it. And I actually think it's really important that anybody who does anything digitally, who spends all their time, I mean, sorry, figuratively, digitally on a computer, <laughs> digital computationally with zeros and ones should also do things digitally with their hands. Is is that, do you have that philosophy too? I do. You know, there, there's quite a, there's a lot of symbology in software, as you know, you know, you're dealing with things that are really abstract and high concept. Um, and in the, at the end of the day, if everything goes right, you come out with something you can see and interact with, but it takes a while. Um, at the end of the day, at our workshop, um, there is something that we can see that's sitting on the table. It's very concrete. It's right there, right in front of us. And it's, it's very satisfying to see that, um, yeah, I, I, 
I think that pretty much wraps it up. <laughs> that must for be me. fascinating. I came from this publishing background or print background, and I thought I was going to send my life when I started. I thought I'd be working with Exacto knives, but I knew computers were coming. And then <laughs> suddenly it's like, okay, everything's on the computer, but I'm still outputting stuff. And at the end, you get a book. And I'm like, but you know, I know things will move to the to the internet more and more. It was even when I started doing desktop publishing, the internet existed in some form. And then it's like, okay, so I spend my whole day doing stuff and all that happens is it paints pixels. There's phosphors and LEDs and things. <laughs> it must be something really satisfying at the end of the day that you have a thing. You have something that you can actually touch and show and sell people and give away. Uh, how satisfying is that to have a like a palpable object as the output of your work? It's extremely satisfying. You know, the nice thing about creating a physical object or a kinetic sculpture really is what we're doing because it started out as more of a, a collaborative art project between James and I when we started. We just wanted to see if, if we could make something that worked. But the nice thing about this, um, these artifacts is that they don't uh, go out of, uh, you don't have new versions of them necessarily that can't be uh, ridden around when the new software date update comes <laughs> out. Um, you know, they're going to be rolling, you know, anywhere between 50 and 150 years if everything works out right. And people have been doing this for a long time. They're not going away. They're a really uh, critical part of the transportation infrastructure and they're fun. They're super fun. I can't necessarily say I have the same kind of fun when I create uh, matrices in Excel. Uh, so that's <laughs> so it's a really it's a really satisfying feeling not only to be on this thing and ride around and be able to go anywhere and haul anything that I want in it, but also the idea that other people are going to be able to experience that people I've never met, uh, people that maybe they'll sell the bike to that have no idea who we are, but they just see this thing and how it can integrate into their life, and it's that's really exciting. Couldn't it be argued that bikes are actually the correct mode of transportation, that automobiles are a blip in history? Because as as you well know, bikes predate automobiles. And we also know that airplanes came from automobiles because the Wright brothers were bicycle manufacturers, bicycle designers. So maybe maybe automobiles are actually the anomaly and that bikes are actually our, our intended dominant mode of transportation. Sure. I think that's one way to look at it, but time will tell, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's a, a fusion with the electric bike. Uh, market that's coming up that's happening that uh, is turning into sort of a motorcycle in a way um, without all of the uh, extra pollution well there's some externalities of course with the battery production and such but yeah it's it, that's a I think right now we could say that uh, because of the amount of money that's gone into the infrastructure it's here to stay um, but there isn't a, there's no reason why they can't live together well, we're seeing that in Seattle. I know Portland is – I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which was a super biking town when I was a kid. Yeah, and then, that's where I was born. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, great. What's, a, what's a wonderful <laughs> little town. I li well, I should say I lived there for about 10 years in the uh, in the 80s, and um, and it was – had bike lanes marked when we got there in 79, and it was yeah. it was a town designed for bike, and I biked five miles each way to school when I, in high school, for actually a chunk of high school even, in junior high bike five miles each way every day and it was flat and had great roads and the drivers actually didn't try to hit you i never was doored was never hit was never in an accident <laughs> in like five or six years of biking almost every day to school and um portland has got some similar advantages seattle's coming aboard and you know you see things like uh we've talked about this uh ellie blue is a friend of yours and we talked to yeah. her um a few months ago on a, on a podcast and uh you see the programs like the uh, urban bikes the um was it city bike in new york and yep with bike sharing and all this stuff it feels like bikes are 
really a big part of how people are thinking about at the government level what the future of moving people around is. It's like really come back to the fore as part of multimodal transportation options. Are you surprised to see that? I mean, Portland is always a bubble for all kinds of stuff, as is Seattle and, and a lot of the, some of the coastal cities on the West. Are you surprised to see this transformation happening? Well, as a true Portlander, I'll say no. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Good. Everyone just took everyone else time uh, to catch on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. You know, when I, I grew up in the Willamette Valley and we have family here in Portland, so I was up here a lot as a kid. And I remember riding my bike uh, down Northeast Broadway and, and whenever I'd see another biker, I'd ring my bell frantically and wave and they'd wave back and we were really happy to see each other. Uh, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure uh, in Portland. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to see how, uh, the city hall kind of caught onto that. Um, especially after a couple of lawsuits that helped, uh, <laughs> ensure that there were bike lanes, uh, yeah. the money for bike lanes were actually being, uh, you know, implemented and paint was getting on the road. Um, and it, it showed that I think that the amount of dollars that they put in for this infrastructure, uh, the benefit far outweighs the cost. I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And, and I think a lot of other people, uh, in other cities kind of knew that anyway, but once they saw some best practices happening in, in Eugene, especially, that's just, you know, what I'm never seeing in Eugene, all these bike lanes. I was like, wow, why can't Portland be like that? Why can't every city be like that? Well, and in Europe, it happened because gasoline costs more and the cities are denser and they're closer yeah. together. And, and I, you know, without becoming an urban planning podcast, I know that this is, <laughs> this is the future is like we're having the re-urbification of, of America is that it's more expensive in the suburbs. It's become clear. Mm -hmm. The houses, more expensive houses are unaffordable because the mortgage bubble popped. Cities and urban planners have discovered that the denser that it's more efficient to have denser cities but if you have denser cities you need more transportation options and, yeah, and it, it all comes and, together and in another way i think the bicycle transportation is kind of a reaction to gaps in that transportation system that happened through deinvestment in the public transit system and you know portland's transit system collapsed after the 50s uh oh, yeah. and went into bankruptcy and it was really hard to get it back and so you know if you don't have a car what do you do uh, you get on a bike if you can um, or if you have a DUI, you get on a bike. That was kind of the perception that it's, you know, for people that don't have the money to buy a car or they were, you know, drunk and they got caught. Um, and that's changing quite a bit now. But I think that bicycles and, you know, before all that infrastructure came in and the city picked it up, it was just a reaction to a lack of transportation options. And I uh, like to talk about bikes on this show, which probably seems weird because we're not a bike podcast either. I'm like, this is, I'm defining everything this podcast isn't because it ties in to me with that idea of doing something on your own. A bike is human powered. It can be powered by multiple humans. It can be used in so many different ways. And I feel like it's part of the, like, there's an aesthetic thing about, um, maybe like aesthetes and aesthetics, right? <laughs> is that like, it's, it's both minimal but because you can do it for yourself, you don't – I mean, once it's built, yes, you have to mine iron in some distant land sometimes. Yes. yes, you have to have machine parts and all that. Maybe your bike is assembled in China or Thailand or somewhere else. But that said – and not yours. We'll talk about yours in a second. <laughs> but that said, it's still once you have the device, um, you can repair it yourself in a way that most people cannot repair modern cars. That's changed a little, but, you know – get into closed car computer systems and things, but you can repair a bike very easily. I can do bike repair on my bike. I can oil yeah. my chain and put a new chain on. You can power it yourself. So it's a self-motivation thing and all that. So I feel like bikes are this weird symbol of individuality and self-determination that cars are not, even though cars are often defined in that way. There's so many other pieces involved 
in keeping a car going. But let me let you know. I realize we've got this far on the podcast. Can you define, explain what makes a a Bach Feats or a cargo bike? Um, what defines that? I'm sure there's a broad definition, but but what is the category that occupies? Well, in the the continuum of of cargo bikes, there's quite a few, um, but a Bach Feats in particular. Uh, is a front loader or a box bike style of cargo bike where the all of the goods or whatever you want to put in the, is located in the front of the rider um, in between the front wheel and the rear steerer as we like to call it um, and they were I, I don't know the Danes and the, the Dutch will they'll be arguing about this for years about who invented it I'm pretty sure it was the Dutch <laughs> sorry don't don't send me email about that um, but they used it as a uh, a way to transport goods and services without having to use um, automobiles or any kind of uh, human or non-human powered uh, technology to get, you know, who knows, bread, uh, butcher bikes were very popular that had that same kind of front loading capability. And that's what we chose uh, to build because it, it just, it totally captured my imagination. And we certainly were not the first people to do it because we haven't been around for 80 years, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think we were one of the first uh, groups to modernize um, that form. Um, you know, the first time I ever saw one of those things, um, this woman had imported one, uh, from the Netherlands and it, I just, I had to chase her down. I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm not stalking you, but what, <laughs> what is that thing? What is it? I've got to know what it is. And over a period of a week, I'm a pretty good networker. I was able to find two people in town that had one. And one of the guys was crazy enough. Uh, Rick Wilson was crazy enough to loan it to me for a couple of days. And it was great, except there were a couple of things that I wanted to change about it. And that started the whole journey. Well, this way lies madness, right? Now you're, yeah. now you're down the path. Well, that's what I was, I was wondering is, you know, I, I have not, I've seen a few in Seattle now. I saw, I actually, after, uh, I think at some point after Ellie Blue wrote the article, I, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, is Ellie Blue and my friend Leanne, Bergeron, well, actually, Ellie Blue's a friend now, too. Um, yeah. Leon, Leon's someone I've known for 20 years who lives in the Netherlands now, Canadian living in the Netherlands. And they both pitched and wrote articles for me for the magazine about um, Bach feats in it from different angles. Because mm -hmm. uh, Leanne, it's her everyday. They have like six bikes, and it's her everyday thing. It's just part of her life, and it was something she never dealt with growing up in uh, Toronto suburbs. Uh, so... Um, after that, I started seeing them. I think they were invisible to me. I thought of them as like, well, there's some funky outfits in town where they have like businesses have them. Then sure. I start to see more average, you know, normal family people around with them, sometimes with kids in. I've been stopping people myself. I'm like, oh, this is really appealing. But the thing to me, I have not ever ridden one. Seems like it would be really hard to 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 uh, to get around in it. I'd love to know the mechanics of. Um, uh, I know there's a speed issue, right? You don't wind up going very fast on them. How hard is it to move? You know, a couple hundred pounds when you have people and groceries and other stuff in there, plus yourself. Well, it's, it's it, surprisingly it's much easier than you might think. Getting off the line with a couple of hundred pounds is a little more challenging than if you were to have some weight in the saddlebags. But the nice thing about the design is the the center of gravity is so low that when you put weight in there, it just kind of sticks to the ground and wants to go forward without oh. falling over on you. Mm -hmm. And once you get the momentum up, because of all that mass, it takes a, uh, you have to put Watts in, of course, but it doesn't take as much energy as you might think to keep it going. And it's absolutely fun to ride a little bit disorienting at first because you have four feet of bike <laughs> in front of you, but it's as long as you look where you want to go, your body takes over just like you're riding a normal bike. And it's so fun. Um, every time I go around a corner, it's like someone had taken a happy pill about 10 minutes before and they're peeking <laughs> as they see me and they're like waving and just having a good time. It's wonderful. 
Well, and it's multiplied now because you're you and some other folks, different parts of the country, are making these things now, right? Because before you would have, as you said, people were importing these from the Netherlands or elsewhere in Europe, um, but there weren't domestic manufacturers. Well, there were actually. There was mm. one uh, down in Eugene. Oh, surprise! <laughs> surprise! Surprise! And uh, that was Center for Appropriate Transport was making them. Oh, and, I know those guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and but you know the 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 form that I was looking at, um, you know, it was more of just cargo focused and more utilitarian. And when I saw this bike from the Netherlands, it had a beautiful wooden box on the front, and it had a setup for carrying children. And I immediately connected with that, although I didn't have a child at the time. Um, I just knew that that was something that I wanted to find more out about and made the mistake of wondering, oh, how hard could it be to build one of those things? Yeah. <laughs> that way, wait, this is the way madness lies. So so yeah. tell me about that journey, though. So you, you find one of these things, and, and what were you doing at that time? Did you have a profession? Were you trying to figure out what you were doing with yourself when you came across this? Well, yeah. You know, uh, years ago, I had a software company uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, just before the dot bomb. And uh, you know, I got out of that. We were lucky enough to sell sell our software company. We had a tangible product. It was Woo-hoo! very nice. People wanted to pay Did, you a sold, little bit of money. You sold it in like May of 2000, something like that? And it was, um, yeah, it was like uh, <laughs> February of 2000. Yeah, I know a number time. of people yeah. who, who people were in. I know a conference business that sold out, I think, right around then, just before it all fell apart. If you got it exactly the right moment, you could do okay. You'd be able to, you know, walk away at least. Yeah, dumb luck. So I, I went to uh, college and, you know, got my degree and then didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. So I thought, well, maybe I'll become an attorney. But before I do that, I'm going to go work for a law firm. And I'm so glad I did. I love those guys. But, uh, you know, working at an intellectual property law firm is uh, not my idea of uh, fun. So I decided that uh, I would try my hand at building these bikes. And my business partner, James Nichols, who does a majority of the uh, fabrication, uh, he has been welding since he was 14 professionally, and I've known him uh, since about that time. And we, you know, I went over to his house and we had a beer and I showed him this picture of the bike. And I was like, what do you think? Are you interested? And he's like, oh, heck yeah. And, you know, at the same time, we said, well, how hard could it be? And we created a rubric of what we wanted based upon you know, our experience with this other bike that we'd ridden, uh, what we wanted to change and what would be a successful outcome. And we just decided we would try to build one. And it took us about a year (laughs) to do. Um, And in the meantime, people started finding out that we were doing this project. And I don't know how they found us, but they started knocking on our door and they were like, here, we want to pay you money to build one of these for us. And we're like, we don't even know how to build them ourselves. How in the world could, why would you want to trust us to do this? And it was an uphill battle for people to get us to even consider uh, building them for uh, profit. Um, but eventually we got there after about, I'd say four or five bikes, uh, we finally figured out a product that we were comfortable with, that we liked, that we felt was uh, probably marketable. And it just started rolling from there. Hey, let's take a break so I can tell you about 99designs, one of this week's sponsors. Now, you know from previous episodes, and I'm probably repeating myself already, I was trained as a typesetter and as a graphic designer. I know the work it takes to do visual communication right. It's involved. It's challenging. But you know what? It doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. Simple projects shouldn't cost a lot, but all the overhead that's involved in finding a designer, making the contracts, and having every relationship work adds up. 
99 Designs takes a lot of that pain out of the process, and it's a disruptive company because it takes the pain out both for you as a client who needs, you know, a new logo, a business card updated, a car wrap, a T-shirt, whatever you might need designed. It removes the friction between you and over 310,000 graphic designers in 99designs network. They take the pain out of it not only by vetting people and making sure that the transactions go well, they offer a 100% money-back guarantee. And what they make it possible to do is for you to come up with the idea of what you need, whatever it might be, submit it, and get dozens of designers to compete for the initial idea. Then you can pick someone, have them work it through to completion, you pay a reasonable fixed rate so you know exactly what to expect, and you get the results within a week, sometimes faster. These are all professional, competent designers who come to 99designs and participate because they want your work. This is an efficient marketplace that lets them work better, too. It's a win all around. Now, why would you use 99designs? It's typically because you need one thing and because you might want it to turn around fast. You might be doing seasonal advertising. You might need to update your logo. You might need, say, a bunch of business cards designed or their website pages to be done. Any of those things where you can define a job really discreetly and it's a task that has a good bound to it. You can put this up on the site, you get dozens of responses, and you've got what you want with a reliable, consistent experience and the backing of 99designs in case something goes wrong. 99designs disrupted graphic design not by making it less expensive, but by removing overhead and removing the impediment, by making a more direct connection and making a more efficient marketplace that you can be part of, listener to the new disruptors. And as part of this, you can get a nice bonus. If you go to 99designs.com, that's numeral nine, numeral nine, designs.com slash disruptors, you get a $99 power pack of services free and you can get even more designers to work with you on your branding. And now back to the podcast. How, how did you start though? I mean, so you have a, a buddy who knows how to weld really well, <laughs> yeah. but I also know, I mean, I know there's things that you can buy tubular steel, you can get stuff manufactured to, you know, you're, I mean, there's all of these bits and pieces. Did you have to buy existing bike stuff or were you really trying to do this from scratch we we absolutely did it from scratch first of all you know we didn't have any capital we were just Mm -hmm. doing this out of our back pocket and you know we weren't planning on um, spinning up a manufacturing facility and so china was out and 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 this is actually this is 2007 right this is like seven years ago you got started okay yeah yeah in 2007 and and honestly we we it was maniacally important to us that we build it here that we you know build it on our own terms and that we you know, because we weren't planning on having a business, like I said, China kind of was out or Taiwan. Not that there's anything wrong, um, you know, with their manufacturing processes over there as, no, far, as, scale, as far as quality goes. But yeah, yeah scale, absolutely. Money up front and scale and yeah. be able to maybe even go. I mean, I know people who when they get stuff manufactured there, they, they kind of need to do some visits, which is extremely expensive, but depends on the scale you're doing. So, you know, what absolutely. You're yeah, and, and with software development, I had a, a bit of uh, project management skills under my belt and supply chain management, even though it was in zeros and ones, <laughs> and, and cash flow management. And, you know, when when we finally got that first bike finished, it was so amazing. I I had an inkling that maybe this was something I wanted to do, and, and it helped that we had some people that were interested, too. And but we still refused to move forward on it. But little by little, we developed a system uh, from scratch, building all of our own tools and not being smart enough to ask other people in the industry, how do you do this? We just kind of figured it out on our, on our own. Um, and, you know, eventually we created the skill set that no one else had. 
uh, in the U.S. that we knew of uh, until I remembered, oh, yeah, Cat, those guys. <laughs> <laughs> but they're um, building – so when you talk about – I guess one of the differentiations is – so you guys started with the notion you wanted to make something – you had this model in mind of this of these Dutch bike you'd seen. Yes. Uh, and, and some of the qualities that it embodied you wanted to, to represent. And the folks at Cat – but I know that – because I've seen for years and years, I've seen people cycling around with, you know, an ice cream thing in the front or whatever. And they're often – the yeah. bikes are not usually as long as yours, I think. I mean, that's yes. not right. Or they have a thing in the back. It's more like a trailer, which is not quite the classic form. But but it sounds like that's where the competition was was in when you say utilitarian, often for this kind of mobile business purpose, let's say, or delivery purpose. Yeah, and and, and it, I think it helped that it started out more as a uh, art project for us. We wanted it to just look absolutely beautiful, and so. You know, instead of uh, making it a little bit shorter, we made it a little bit longer. Instead of dropping some of the steel and cutting it off to make it lighter, we put curves and things to keep that steel there. Um, and we wanted to make sure that every single feature on this bike had a dual purpose, um, if po- if at all possible. And if it wasn't working out, we just cut out that feature. Oh, wait. So, so explain. Let's, let's break into that. So what do you mean by a dual purpose? You mean it was a functional anesthetic or, or what were the what were the, the per- double purposes? Yeah, functional anesthetic. So, for example, you know, we had we decided early on that instead of using fiberglass, which is kind of an ugly process to work with in the beginning, we'd use marine grade plywood for our boxes. Mm. And and in those boxes, we're like, well, if we're going to be hauling kids, why, what kind of shape do we want to invoke, um, you know, safety or comfort or whatever? And Jamie came up with this sleigh or a cradle kind of look to it. And we're like, well, you know, if we take the box off, we need to put handholds in it so people can carry this thing around. Or if you need to have a couple of people move the bike, why don't we put handholds in it so you can, you know, bring it up a flight of stairs easily. Um, for an example, tell me, and this is terrible. I need to put up, I'll have to put up a link to a video or something. When you're steering, you're steering the front wheel. The, the handlebars are behind the cargo area, but when you yes. steer, you're steering the front wheel. And the, I see in the, in the main design you have, there's uh the front forks have kind of a cap, but it looks to me like you can put something in there. Is that part of the double purpose too? Oh gosh, I'm I'm sorry, I don't really. Uh... Well, the fork the forks <laughs> come up, but it looks to me like is there a plate? Do you put can you put handlebars into the front forks as well or no? Oh no, you can't. But I mean, I suppose you could technically. There is a star nut in there, and you could put a stem on there. Yeah. But no, that's that's purely aesthetics oh, okay. um, as far as the cap goes. Yeah. But there are things that we've done forming the fork that makes it a lot stronger, but it also that oval shape is just absolutely stunning and mm-hmm. beautiful. And then there are things that we've done to the fork legs that allow, but the way we bend them that allow a multiplicity of uh, different widths of tires that you can put on there and different uh, dyno hubs and a whole bunch of different uh, components. Right. And, but in, this is the interesting thing too, is like how forms um, evolve out of, uh, I guess there's forms that you think of as, define because they define the thing in your head for you. So a bike always looks yeah. a certain way. Like, and I know a bicycle typically has, you know, has two wheels, sometimes three or four. You don't call it not a bike at that point, I guess. Maybe it's a tricycle or a quad yeah. cycle. But, but your bike looks like a bike. Like you didn't have to. So clearly uh, while you're building something from scratch, you're not using other people's parts, but you still evolved a form that's very much like the way other bikes work. Is that, was that form perfected? I mean, the, the state of, the way in which most bikes look, is that the right way to build a bike? 
<laughs> you sure. know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do know what you mean. That's that's a really good question. But, you know, I think that creating a rubric for us was just key. Absolutely key. Um, one of the outcomes that we wanted to have is, um, well, I guess I should say we identified a problem. And that was all of these bikes that were being imported um, used proprietary parts or parts that were really hard to get in the States. And so we wanted to make sure that this bike could be built up by any bike mechanic in the U.S., that was worth their salt, of course, um, or by an individual that was used to an American bicycle and that they could get these parts anywhere that they wanted and that it would fit onto our frame properly and uh, work without uh, a lot of fuss. I and see. so that also helped dictate the design parameters of oh, the, the frame it, itself. Like, so your, your hubs, your wheels, your... Um... Gosh, it's been so long since I've been putting things on bike. Like you know, all the uh, what? What do you call this? Terrible, I can't even think. What do you call the big gear that the chain goes around? Is it the hub? What do you call that? Yeah, the the crank in the, the rear cog. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Thank you. Like yeah. the thing and the other thing. Yeah, that, um, but the so stuff all those that like that's go. a Shimano or that's those are all standard parts that you can put on this thing. Yeah, and you can get them anywhere. You don't ah, have to wait okay. for a special order. You can go into a bike shop and be reasonably assured that um, it's going to work. Oh, I see. So you so that was the constraint is that you want? No, I see. That actually defines further what I meant is. That that you're you're working within, and I think constraints are always great in design yes. too, because you pr can produce amazing things. But so you had to build this all within the constraint you said is you wanted interchangeability. Once someone got your frame, wherever they got it, they weren't having to come back to you for some special sealed chain component thing. I'm a bob. It's like no, you just get a chain, and it's a normal chain, and you put it on the bike. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there there are a few exceptions to that, like part of our steering linkage we designed. It's proprietary to us, mm -hmm. um, although, you know, we'll tell anyone how to make it because we don't we don't have a patent on it. We don't really care. Um, but we eliminated the um, a couple of problems that the other bikes had, too, with uh, slow speed uh, wobbles in turns with mm -hmm. heavy weight and also high speed uh, shimmying. So we completely eliminated that with some of the proprietary things that we're doing on the bike. Let's um, but proprietary in your terminology though is like is actually open in other people. So it's it's something you developed and you make and you have a process to make it, but you're not secret about it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess proprietary in uh, the sense that we came up with it. Homegrown. Yeah, homegrown. <laughs> yes, exactly. Organic homegrown. That's right. That's Free range. <laughs> well, so there's a, you know, the supply chain issue is a big thing. We've already talked a little bit about, you know, about China and Taiwan, other countries mm -hmm. involved in manufacture and, and, uh, and even things like uh, what I'm saying, oh yeah, a bike puts you on your own, but wait a second, someone has to or, you know, mine the or. Did you see the book this fellow wrote? I just saw it in a bookstore and I I couldn't bring myself to buy it because I didn't think I'd read it twice, but it was really fascinating. For the right person, I think it's a great gift. The guy who made the toaster from scratch. Oh, no. I have not seen that. I'll I'm put a that down right now. link into this. It's um, So this guy's name is uh, it's Thomas. I think it's pronounced Thwaites, and it's called The Toaster Project. And he said, basically, could I make one literally from scratch? So he bought ore, and he refined it. And he like made wires and he built a toaster. Now the thing looks like the dog's lunch because he didn't, you know, because he, he did everything, you know, literally with tools and things he made himself. But it's a fascinating thing. It documents the whole process of that. So he, you know, he literally made it from scratch to the extent that nothing is made from scratch in modern society. Everything is all these different pieces. How do you deal with the sourcing issues? I mean, a lot of people buy their tubular steel from China, for instance. So do you mm -hmm. have, where do you source stuff from? And, and, and I don't mean to get all Portlandy on you, but you know, we do have this issue right now. People deal about, uh, think about, uh, you know, uh, human rights involved in manufacturing stuff. You've got yeah. conflict minerals, you've got conflict, uh, um, 
not minerals, but things like uh, the yeah, cad- blood diamonds, the right? blood diamonds. Yeah. But you also yeah. have like conflict um, component things, you know, cadmium and other stuff. There's rare earths that only China has. All the rest of the world's trying to develop supplies for computers. All this stuff is an issue. You know, is the steel being rolled in a factory run by prisoners? We talk about this with the food chain now. That's come to the fore. We have the conflict stuff coming to the fore. How do you consider that, given your orientation, in, in where you buy stuff from? Yeah, well, you know, we're lucky enough to still have a steel manufacturer. Uh, True Temper is where we buy all of our steel, and they make all of the tubular steel for our bikes in Mississippi. And we just lucked out uh, and <laughs> found out about those guys on our own, although I could have picked up the phone and talked to any other frame builder in Portland, and they would have told me that just, you know, in like a minute. <laughs> a part of the part of the fun is the research, I suppose. Um, and so, you know, and because it was so maniacally important to us to source as much of this stuff as we could in the U.S., it just turned out that we were able to do that. Um And another thing, too, is that we didn't want to, like you were saying, we didn't want to be beholden to anyone else's supply chain as far as, like, you know, buying a fork off the shelf and then modifying it. Because, like, where does that come from? Can we get it? What's the availability if we were to do that? And so we decided to do it on our own. And, you know, we're not going to build a foundry or anything because True Timber is great and they're doing a really good job for us and it's all steel made in the U.S. So we're able to get around that ambiguity of like, where is this product coming from? Who is making it? And, you know, how polluted is the the pond next door that, you know, how green was their valley before they started well, what people are gonna mining start, all this stuff? are going to start to wake up to is like with the rare earth thing. And again, every, yeah. every, I have to keep disclaiming this podcast is not about mineral sourcing or steel <laughs> sourcing. But, uh, in, you know, this is something that's happened is China changed its policies on rare earth uh, export because mm-hmm. they were running short of their own supply. And suddenly around the world, all these companies that depend on these these very specific minerals for that are very found in very specific places. And essentially everybody in the world had allowed China to just take care of the problem because they're offering it inexpensively. And even though there were supplies elsewhere, they weren't being developed and suddenly costs go up and supplies go down and computer and other electronics manufacturers find themselves in a position where this thing that costs, you know, X cents per, you know, whatever kilogram is now 10x cents per kilogram. So to some extent, I wonder if you're insulating yourself against the vagaries of the rest of the world's economy when you source locally. I mean, not like steel isn't going to go up and down in price, but you know the manufacturer and you know where the the ore is very likely is domestic. You don't export ore typically. I know it happens sometimes. So you've insulated yourself from some of the vagaries of what's going to happen in the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And as it turns out, too, it's become quite a competitive advantage. There's, um, you know, uh, quite a few of these um, what we call box bikes or box box feats. And I like to call them Metro feats, of course, because that's our (laughs) brand. But, um, you know, they're being imported. um, But I hear (laughs) from a lot of these folks that are um, importing them, especially the, the Chinese, not the Taiwanese built ones, but the Chinese built ones that, you know, they'll get a container of them. And one container is totally different than the rest. And than the next one that comes in. And so they have a lot of waste and a lot of rebuilds and a lot of uh, headache to, you know, put these things together. And, and we, because we're building it and we're in charge of the supply chain and we are manufacturing the whole thing, it, we don't have to deal with that unless we screw up and then, you know, we throw the wrench across the room and make it right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I hate to and I hate to diss as I'm sure you are. It's like there's nothing wrong with Chinese manufacture at all. What's hard no. is controlling the chain. And I've heard you know consistently Chinese manufacturers you you contract with 
they will sometimes promise you one kind of thing, but then they'll subcontract out and the subcontractor subcontracts out. And unless you're in control of the whole chain, which is very difficult as a small company, it's even difficult for company. You know, Samsung found out one of its company or one of its divisions is allegedly uh, one of the Chinese manufacturers allegedly <laughs> had child workers. They like were walking yeah. across the street. A reporter stopped and talked to them. and said, yeah, we have faked pet. You know, so even a company, yeah. multi-billion dollar yeah. companies have difficulty, but it's not a criticism of China per se, because they've mastered the mass production of all kinds of things that are remain unaffordable in the U.S., but the trade-offs are there, and consistency can be one of them among batches. I've definitely heard that a lot. Yeah, and, and it, it turns out, you know, building uh, relationships with other manufacturers and folks, because we, we've moved uh, past just doing it all in our shop. You know, mm-hmm. We job out. We job out some of the fork building to local frame builders here that we work with. We job out some of the tube bending um, to, you know, actually it's like six blocks away. Oh, yeah. Let me, let me let you, I'm going to interrupt you. Let's back up a second. Cause tell me about sure. scale. This is always one of the most fascinating things <laughs> whenever I can never figure out what scale is. I, one of the very first podcasts, uh, when you're talking about physical goods, one of the very first uh, episodes in the series was with uh, Chris Anderson, uh, who's now the head of 3d robotics at the time. Yeah. He's still the editor in chief of wired. And he was talking about, well, we did this and we were assembling on the tabletop. Then we started to get toaster ovens. Then we outsourced it. And then we got big enough. We bought the equipment. Then we insourced it. Then we got bigger. And it was like in, out, in, out, in, out. And at every level of scale, they, because it's like, do you buy the million dollar machine? Well, when you're doing, you know, when you're spending $5 million out of house and you could spend less than you buy it. So how did you deal? You had the first year you built your first bike. You had people, clamoring for more clearly but come out of the woodwork they want it and you have some scale you've got to ramp up to to the present day and i'm assuming based on the way you talk and how busy you are i'm assuming that scale is bound partly your current level by your ability to manage as much as you're doing right so you're not like at a you haven't reached a plateau in terms of what you could produce no absolutely not although yeah there are definitely (laughs) definitely some days where i wonder if we're gonna you know be able to keep doing this at the rate we're doing it. Yeah. And, and when is, uh, you know, enough enough. That's a conversation we have in the shop all the time. That's it's like, okay, great. how many are we going to produce this year? Yeah. And how many do we want to produce? And let's find out where that happy medium is. Let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's indie advertisers. These are independent creators, makers, programmers, and others who are trying to reach an audience directly. These ads are sponsored in part by cards against humanity. App Accomplished is a book that guides you step-by-step through turning your idea for an app from a set of requirements through hiring a developer and into a piece of software you can release on an app store. The book is intended for people who don't know how to write code and don't necessarily want to learn how. Carl Brown, the author, explains how to take an app idea and turn it into a set of requirements that developers can use. They can estimate the time and effort needed for the project. The book helps you find the right developer, learn how to manage the project, how to test builds, and how to submit it to the App Store for approval. Carl is a consultant who's worked with real people going through real projects. The book contains hard-won wisdom, real examples of problems that happened during projects. It identifies common mistakes, and it gives helpful tips on how to avoid them. Kyle Richter wrote the foreword. He's the head of Martian Craft, a leading app development studio, and he wrote, I wish that every one of our clients would first read App Accomplished before hiring us. It's a great endorsement, and it's a great book. Get a copy of the book by going to appaccomplished.com. That's all one word, appaccomplished.com. This may be a book you need for yourself, or it might be a book you want to give to that person who asks you, hey, how do I turn this idea I have into something real? Appaccomplished.com. 
We're also brought to you by FoxyCart, the most flexible way to add e-commerce to your website. It's simple to sell any product to any customer on any device. Digital downloads, subscriptions, recurring billing, donations, whatever you can imagine, FoxyCart can handle it. They have a fully responsive, fully accessible cart. Checkout looks great on mobile devices, and their PCI compliance means customers' data is secure. FoxyCart is behind thousands of businesses, both large and small, they can't wait to help your business succeed. FoxyCart is free until you're ready to start taking orders so you can try it out. Visit FoxyCart.com, F-O-X-Y-C-A-R-T.com slash disrupt to sign up and explore. And now back to the podcast. Well, this is like, you know, Luthier's. It's like, are you going to really, um, you know, I, I can make uh, 435 guitars this year of a certain quality, but I only want to make, you know, a 250 with the apprentices I have and so forth. So Absolutely. And, you know, part of that scale thing, too, is yeah. that, you know, where when we first started, you know, we built one bike and then we quadrupled our output the next year. <laughs> Which, you know, we built just four more. So. And, you know, it's a totally different animal when you're building in that small of batches and then ramping up to what we're doing now. And, you know, it's uh, Boeing and a bunch of other manufacturers suck up a lot of the capacity for laser cutters and tumblers and machiners, machinists. So we had to do a lot of stuff in-house because, one, our volume wasn't big enough. And uh, two, we if, even if we could have got our volume up, no one would have taken our job because mm -hmm. it was still too small uh, for them to even notice. Uh, what we were doing, you know, it's, it might've been a, an Excel sh spreadsheet error um, <laughs> for the amount of money that, you know, we were going to pay them to do right. um, on their balance statement. So, you know, we had that uh, where we were building all of the stuff in house and then it, finally we reached a point where we could job some of it out to people that we knew um, other hobbyists or other frame builders uh, that needed work. And that was, you know, working out really well, but then, you know, that we started to strip out their capacity. And so we moved, some of it back in house to kind of take that burden off and then started breaking down our um, builds into sub assemblies. So we could have people building different parts of the frames in tandem and we could build stuff in tandem. And so then you started hiring people at that point in house or did you already have some, some people who were working for you? No, we actually did have hire some people in house mm -hmm. and then they, <laughs> we got, we got uh, going so much that we had to start jobbing stuff out even with them yeah. there. And yeah, it's that I heard about that wired interview that you were talking about. And it, it's a fascinating thing. It's like, you know, you get to 100,000 units, not that we're there, but you get to 100,000 units and you can easily do it in house. But then when you get to 500,000 units, you have to job it out again because you just outstripped your capacity. Well, it's nuts too, because I think the narrative from the outside is someone who doesn't actually make physical goods. Like I know how publishing works and like there's a, there's a dial, like, a, you know, we had a, about 1500 copies printed of the magazine book and uh, that dial could easily go, have gone from probably affordably about eight or 900 up to like 50,000 at that plant. Something like that. And then maybe if we got about 50,000, we would have to find a bigger publisher or do it in different batches. We would have outstripped their capability to do it without taking over their entire you know work for a week or something. But like the dial is really huge. But with physical, like when you're doing this kind of assembly, the fact that it goes – the narrative would seem to be, well, you do some stuff yourself. Then you hire people to do it or you mm -hmm. build your own operation. Those are the two paths. It's like no, 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 no. There's – uh, this even came up with like injection molding. I don't know if you have to do any of that for your, <laughs> no. do you do? Yeah. So like the scale, like you can get people to make you 500 units, but when you need a thousand, the 500 unit version does not work at all. You yeah. have to go to this other place. Then when you need a million, it's like a whole, and like just the amount of handwork involved, I can never figure out. So I've talked about this show a lot of the podcast, the how it works show. 
Yeah. Yeah, this program. The thing is always fascinating to me is I can never look at a product, and I'm sure there are designers who can, and say, how many parts were ro- involved robots, human <laughs> hands, and simple machines, or, or mechanical machines driven by engines or motors? And I can never figure it out, and you're, it's always surprising. So in this process, what surprises you going through this and not having grown up welding, but having come into it at a later point in your life? Sure. Um, from the software side, what surprises you about what involves automatic processes or how little it does and how much involves handwork to create your bikes? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing to me, the, the kind of finish that you can get doing hand uh, sanding and hand breaking of metal parts. Like, you know, when you get something laser cut out, it has a really hard carbonized edge. And so there's, you know, it has a, it's really hard to work um, in a vibration tumbler. So you have to take it to a belt sander and take all those hard edges off if you want it to look a certain way like we do. Um, but then, you know, you can get to, you can use other processes like uh, water jet cutting that doesn't have that. Um, or you can start to uh, get really large industrial tumblers um, to kind of get that look. But it, it, what really surprised me is all the different ways that you can do things to get a very particular look. I thought that really it'd just be one way to do it. And, and then I found out that just was not the case. Well, that's interesting. It, yeah. And metal is a crystal, right? If I remember right. Yes. And so that's the thing. I, you know, it's, I think like lay people like myself, it's, it's so depending on how you cut or bend something or break it, you're actually affecting like not just the edge, but like the crystalline structure around it or off to some distance too, right? So it affects your long-term stability, the shape, how it's going to withstand how, the flexibility, all these things. Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of reset that too in a way uh, using heat treating or other methods that are far beyond me. <laughs> For sure. This is uh, good. This is when you have, an, you have an orchestra of people that you and your partner can can conduct to do all the specific stuff that you need to make to make it all come together. Yeah. And, you know, the, it, speaking of scale, just to go back there for yeah. a second, too, you know, when we first started, every single one of our bike was unique. It, we made them custom for people. And, and, you know, we really didn't realize this, but when we were doing it, it was sort of a, a paid laboratory experiment <laughs> for <laughs> us to create these one, one of a kind kinetic sculptures that, in retrospect, informed our line of what we call our standard bikes. So we, we went from being completely custom to a standardized platform with custom parts that you can put on and mix and match. Um, specifically, the cargo box area is one of those things that can be completely customized. And once we decided to make the frame uh, completely standard, that sped up the process immensely. We were able to bring a lot of that back in-house as far as like being able to machine everything in-house and having the time to do it. Because instead of making, you know, 12 bikes a year, because it takes a long time to make a custom bike, um, we could make 100 bikes in a year. And that that was just a three-month process once we figured that out to be able to do that. Now, you've come from a software background. What uh, component of making these bikes involves, you know, CAD CAM and modeling and, and, and prototyping and CNC and any of that other that other computer-driven stuff? How much do you do that that isn't involving uh, the handwork or the, like, it's involving the, the literally uh, non-literal digital part? Well, in the beginning, um, none of it. Uh, you know, we drew out a one-to-one scale using old drafting tools and a big table and did it all analog. Um, because we weren't sure we were going to make more than one. <laughs> so, and we literally welded the frame on top of that drawing. So we have, all, in our archives, we have 
dozens and dozens of these uh, frame sheets that have welding spatter on them or burn marks from welding over the top of them just to make sure we got the alignment right because we did not know what we were doing and we had to verify it with that thing but now we use CAD a lot we do uh, finite material analysis to make sure that you know if we're selling something to someone and it breaks we know exactly why it broke or at least we can go back and uh, do some discovery on that and find out why it broke um, and make something better um, or with you know the finite material analysis just avoid that whole scenario to begin with and so we use a lot of robotic bending uh, laser cutting um, laser coping, uh, CNC milling, um, and then in the end to get that nice finish that we like, we do a lot of handwork and sanding just to get the, all those rough edges uh, turned down and rounded out so it looks nice and I don't know if, if buttery is a good term. Ooh, I like but, that. Yeah. Smooth, smooth and perfect and it's yeah. finished. Um, robotics, a passionately, passionate subject because robotics both enhance people and replace people, but it sounds mm -hmm. like in terms of achieving something you can build affordably. A robotic sounds like it must be a component of that, that you can produce the volume you do and charge the price you do because you don't have to have human beings doing things that robots are, are more efficient at. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, being able to offer a product at a competitive price and still have the margin to be able to uh, do it full time as Jamie and I do and to employ or contract with people um, and help them earn their livelihood doing that is very, very, very cool. We, it's, yeah, I just can't believe we're in this, in this position to be able to do that. And it's all thanks to using CAD cam and automation to do quite a bit of that. And we just wouldn't be able to do it all by hand. This is where I wonder if the cottage industry comes back. People have been talking about it. I mean, literally for decades that, uh, that, you know, people are going to start making stuff in small scales, but all the pieces weren't in place. And as I look at the combination of things, like my, you know, my rubric for the show is, is sort of, it's like, uh, it's like fund, uh, design, prototype, manufacture, and distribute. Like these are all things that have changed. And I think each of them is, is important, but I wonder if we have hardly seen the beginning of what, I mean, we've seen a lot of what 3d printing and, oh, yeah. So, yeah. and CNC and, yeah. and like 2d laser cutting, I think is sometimes underrated. I was talking, um, boy, this is a while ago, but when uh, a maker house opened in Seattle is I think almost two years ago now, uh, they, uh, one of the very first, companies that moved in to do co-working with them was a guitar manufacturer and they were going to use 2d cutting what you know new tool that could do pretty deep cuts just to cut out the blanks for the guitars it was going to save an enormous amount of time and it didn't as within your case it didn't ruin the quality of the final product it wasn't like oh we had people doing it it was wonderful it's like no this was a terrible repetitive task better designed <laughs> for machine now machine does it now we can produce put more of our refinement into the final product instead of the repetitive, terrible stuff that we don't actually want to pay people to do. We can have more artisans involved. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's interesting too, that the, the product we started uh, hand cutting all of our boxes, um, just, you know, using a router and sometimes a file just to get things right. Once we started uh, cutting those out on a CNC table, um, they became so much better. I mean, the, the quality that we're able to provide people because of the repeatability is just incredible, and I, I will never go back. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's great, but I think that's the thing: is is how much does uh, automation and you know physical automation and flexibility it enhances the human brain? And I think it's if we it enhances the human pan. It's like if we treat it as something external. Well, it's a terrible force, rampaging force that will destroy us all. 
Yeah. Then, but if you embrace it, then suddenly you've brought all this work back. You're making something here that could be made elsewhere. Now, does it suck for the Chinese that you're not having it built there and sent here? I don't know because their economy is developing in a different way too. They cannot build their economy and, the, and it's showing as wages have gone up uh, and other costs have gone up substantially in China as they reach a standard of living that's starting to approach the rest of the world. And, and many people there are living and exceeding you know, the average of the rest of the world. Uh, they are not going to be able to be the engine the way they were because labor will cost something in some ratio to what it costs elsewhere. And they will be and are introducing robotics and automation and everything at huge scales uh, in China too. Yeah. And you know, the other thing about automation too, that I really like is it eliminates a lot of waste for us as well. We're able to use 3d printers to rapidly prototype. Um, like I, I, I don't know. I can't really think of a specific part that we've done recently that um, in the last year, but handle grips, no, <laughs> well, you know, certain components of the bike, like the wishbone oh. stage, you know, we've uh, oh, yeah. developed those. And we're trying to figure out a new process to make those. It's a little bit faster and maybe more affordable so we can um, help bring the price down or keep our margins up and keep us fed. Um, but it's so nice to be able to put that um, file and send it away and across town. And, in you know, the next day we have this uh, plastic prototype that we can fit onto the frame and say, well, this almost works. Let's just change this radius just a little bit. And then we do that. And then we put it back into the finite materials analysis and, you know, see if it's going to break. And uh, it's so much better than cutting one out, <laughs> welding it onto a bike. And, you know, two years later, someone saying, hey, I think this is cracking. You know, we can just totally eliminate that. Uh, now, you are a passionate advocate of this. You can tell, everyone can tell listening how you are. <laughs> you do other things. So you've got, a, you've got a business and you got sucked into this, which I think is wonderful. And now seven years <laughs> later, you're like, yeah, this is what I do. I make cargo bikes. It was not yeah. what I did to do. This is what I do. But you're involved in some other things. I think one of the, one of the things that it was, I think is um, like very accessible and amusing, and I mentioned in passing, is the Pedal Powered Talk Show, which is another podcast. And, and, and tell me about this because it has a, a few, it has a unique element to it. How does the Pedal Powered Podcast work? Well, it, we don't take ourselves too seriously, for one. <laughs> it's very, it's very quirky. Uh, and you know, one of the things that we wanted to do, uh, the host Boaz Frankel, uh, we wanted to create a show um, that was based on a cargo bike that could go to the person we're interviewing, rather than having them come to the set. And so, in order to do that, we had to figure out how to get all of the lighting and all of the power cords and cameras and everything into that bike. Um, in a way that we could then take to location and have everything we needed. Um, you know, and as we've gone along, we're in our third season now, we've been able to pare that down uh, quite a bit. But we wanted to celebrate the people that we we're interviewing. Um, there are so many talented people all over town, um, and we've branched out into eastern Oregon too, and we might actually go to a couple of different states uh, in the next season. Stay tuned to pedaltalkshow.com to find out where we go. That is great. <laughs> are you gonna you're gonna are you gonna bike there? Are you gonna have to do some transport, maybe train, take the Amtrak and then bike to the final place? That that actually is a big consideration. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of time that we have. Uh and I have a thirty mile uh each way rule. <laughs> if if it's more than thirty miles each way, we'll probably put it into a van and take it to location and then bike around. How fast um, can you go? You're so I mentioned at the outset, oh, you're the God. engine of this. How many miles an hour can you go on this thing? Well, it's I, I'd say probably about twelve sustained. So, which is, so thirty <laughs> miles is a two and a half ride hour ride. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's I had to find that out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> 
there was uh, there was one particular episode where we were uh, interviewing Blitz and Trapper, and we had just uh, interviewed uh, some folks down at the Keen Shoe Factory where they uh, manufacture shoes for Keen Footwear. And I had to go all the way across town, way down into Selwood, and my only reward was the satisfaction and pride of a job well done. But I was so spent <laughs> that I, <laughs> I had to put my foot down on that one. Uh, well, you know, I should let, let. I think we should close with actually a practical discussion too. I mentioned it at one point, and we were just talking about it a little bit. Is is um, you know, my my maintaining that uh, bikes are this kind of means of self expression, and I think uh, I'm tying in a little with Ellie Blue's um, desire to change the world, not because of bikes, not because she's in love with bikes, but because bikes are a tool and a mechanism to produce social change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of great things about that. But, you know, that's the thing that's always worried me. We talked about this a little bit already is how manageable these are. You, you're pushing out hundreds of these bikes. You have people out there. Uh, uh, it seems like a great experience to actually use these things. That uh, The more you use them, even though you can't go super fast, this isn't about super fast. This is about changing your relationship. So even if you're going five miles an hour, my friend in the Netherlands, she's like, she averages five miles an hour. She says something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. busy. I mean, there's thousands of people on her route from a suburb into Amsterdam. And, uh, you know, they have multi-level bike garages there. There's not multi-level car garages. I'm sure there's somewhere, but multi-level bike garages. So it's busy and there's traffic and, and a slow speed is safer and all that. But it still, it all comes to back to me to feel like this sense of, of self-empowerment, that it's a human scale pace like even going five to ten miles an hour is still more within the human pace than say 20 to 30 miles an hour when you're being amplified by like a a slim down bike well absolutely and you know glenn a lot of the folks that do buy our bikes don't go more than three or four miles on them Mm -hmm. uh, on a particular trip and and generally they have multiple trips throughout the day so you know they cover a good amount of ground but it is so nice for them and this feedback we've been getting that when you ride up to a grocery store um, you get front row parking. I mean, you don't actually don't get front row parking. You get right next to the door that you're going <laughs> to walk into. And you don't have to deal with traffic. And when you're going along the side of the road, at least in Oregon, you can pass on the right. And you don't have to wait behind all the other cars. You're always at the red light. You're you're right there, ready to go. And when I do drive, which feels like a video game now that I've been <laughs> biking so much, uh, it feels like a liability too. That I, It frustrates me to be in that line because I'm so used to the convenience of being able to pull up and go when I want to go and not have to wait in the line with that bike. And it's so much faster. I'm always surprising people. Our clients are always giving us feedback saying, you know, I had no idea that I would beat my friends across town on this beast of a bike that I envisioned would be so slow and so hard to ride, but I was willing to do it anyway. And it's absolutely changed um, what I can do. Uh, in my neighborhood. It's it's wonderful. That makes neighborhoods more achievable. And it, it also means that people change their lifestyles, right? This is one of the things uh, you guys have an extensive light rail system of which we're very jealous of. Light <laughs> rail. We're, we're getting it. Seattle's finally, we get, uh, yes. every time I do the podcast and mention it, it's like the light rail station near my house. I have one that's going to be about a five minute walk away, maybe slightly further. So nice. putting in early 2016 and it will open and my children will be old enough at that point, my older son will probably be able to go out on his own and explore at that point. And instead of having to worry about even buses, which are fine, it's like you can walk over the light rail and go up to Capitol Hill. You can go down, check out the airport. We could, you know, whatever. It's it, all these different scales help, but they make neighborhoods um, more approachable and people make different decisions about where they live based on what they know their transportation option will be. And if they know they can get a cargo bike, suddenly it's like they could live in a place that otherwise a car might be worse to get around in. And uh, things like school decisions. If you can live near a good school where 
you know, there's a lot of traffic congestion, but you could use yeah. a bike. Then how much money do you save if you don't have to decide to do private school or buy a more expensive house as a result? And you put that into the bike. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, consequently, I've been able to meet all my neighbors. I mean, I'm driving this huge, crazy bike around and <laughs> it, I, they stop and talk to me. I mean, how rare is that? And, you know, it's not just me. It's a lot of our clients talk about this too, this connection, this deeper connection with their neighborhood and the town they live in, being able to just be out there on a bike that people want to talk to you about. It's, it's, it's very empowering. It's crazy. The human scale of things. And, you know, so uh, and this is not obviously not an advertisement for your service or product and service. But um, I would like to talk just briefly about costs because I think this is one of the things – I didn't know what the what prices were before. And uh, my wife and I, one of our cars was just stolen. So we're having the discussion about whether we need to get another car. The answer is probably, unfortunately, we need like 1.2 cars. <laughs> and and car to go and other solutions aren't quite here yet. In two years sure. from now, with the kids a little older and the light rail and everything else, we might have been able to avoid it. We think we're going to maybe we'll sell the car then. But so we're looking at prices, and I'm sort of stunned by new car prices because we haven't mm -hmm. bought one for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, what we buy, we might buy like a car that costs $18,000 that, that can fit a family of four and mm -hmm. that has all the features we need and is the cheapest thing we can get that has good fuel efficiency. So yeah. that seems like a ton of money. So in that context, <laughs> what, what does one of your bikes cost fully kitted out? I mean, you've got a range of them. Well, outside of the, you know, how much a car costs, um, you know, the recent, most recent AAA numbers are escaping me, but I think it's around ten, eight to $10,000 just um, on top of buying a new car Oh yeah, for maintenance and fuel and all that stuff that they say you're supposed to do. Probably not everyone well, does six, that. It costs about, I think the IRS reimbursement rate is currently about 60 cents a mile, 55 or 60 cents a mile, which people don't think of. They only think about gas costs. So if you drive 10,000 miles a year, that's, yeah. you know, six, then most people drive more actually. That's like six. Six grand in maintenance and gas and uh, amortization and so forth are the cost of the car. Yeah, so you could almost buy two of our bikes for the price of just maintenance and fuel and all that stuff, not including the cost of your car per year. Mm -hmm. um, so our yeah, our bikes cost about uh, thirty seven hundred dollars. And they last a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're talking about. This is the thing is like we know you. You're you're not, not just speaking the same language in the same country, but it's like we know you. You're a small firm. You've been at this for a while now. You have longitudinal experience. Mm -hmm. And when you say something like that and you talk about your design process, you're clearly engineering this thing. Like you're not trying to put yourself out of business uh, by making something that lasts a long time. You're trying to build a business <laughs> by knowing that your bike you built – you know, six years ago, if it's still in functioning and have all these people now out there with three, four, five-year-old bikes who say, yeah, like this is how much I've had to put into it. This is how well it's done. Look at the condition it's in. All those people are advertisements for the next person trying to make an investment in, in buying it. Absolutely. And, you know, Jamie and I, one of our goals was that when we decided, we, yes, okay, we're going to start selling these to people, is that our end goal is I want to be sitting with him at a cafe when we're 90 and see one of our bikes <laughs> roll by and we can both kind of look at each other and nod and go, yeah, remember when we built that back in, you know, 2009 or whenever it was. And, uh, man, that was a tough build, but there it is. You're, yeah. you're building for the ages and, yeah. uh, and, uh, that's, that's what makes it affordable and interesting. Well, Phil, thank you for informing us about this, both your, your past, your present, and this whole new area of, of bike construction. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, Glenn, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a huge fan of yours, and I'm so flattered that you invited me to be on your show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, T-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.